From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, we're focused on elections, from ballot measures to ballot integrity, like making sure signatures match what's on record. Unlike my Social Security card that I got when I was like 14, and it's like cursive handwriting signature, and now it is just degraded to like a It's just a scribble. CPR investigative reporter Ben Marcus joins us with what he's found about rejected ballots. Then pit bulls are on the ballot in Denver, plus a sales tax to help people experiencing homelessness. And the election goes far beyond deciding the presidency and Congress. There are 11 statewide ballot measures. It's expensive to put something on the ballot, so you go to the ballot when you're not getting it from the legislature. The Purplish team breaks down what voters have to consider. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado's vote-by-mail is often described as the gold standard of elections. There's a lot to like about voting by mail, especially in the coronavirus era. But a CPR News investigation found that tens of thousands of ballots are rejected and uncounted every year in Colorado. We're going to explore that today with CPR's Ben Marcus. After he voted in the 2018 general election, Michael Yamada remembers getting a notice in the mail. It said that his signature on the ballot envelope didn't match what was on file. It's funny because then I looked at it unlike on like my social security card that I got when I was like 14. And it's like cursive handwriting signature. And now it is just degraded to like a, it's just a scribble. His scribble was flagged by a machine in Denver. Then human judges looked at it and agreed that it didn't match. To be fair to them, like it is a very, it's a very low effort on my part. So I felt, I felt like that was like, oh man, I'm getting flagged for being lazy. Most rejected ballots are for a signature that doesn't match. And in almost every case, it should have counted. CPR News found that overall, 100,000 ballots have been rejected and uncounted in Colorado over four different elections. That's enough voters to fill Mile High and the Pepsi Center and still have 5,000 people in the parking lots, and enough to make a difference in a close election. That is exactly what I've been railing against for the last almost 10 years. That's Daniel Smith, a professor of political science at the University of Florida and a longtime critic of Vote by Mail. Colorado elections officials regularly sell it as a model for the nation, but Professor Smith says it's not a perfect system. To say that Colorado is this blueprint for success is not taking the veneer off and looking inside to see what is actually going on. There is much to like about Colorado's system. Voting by mail is convenient and easy for the vast majority of people. And rejected signatures are a known problem with vote-by-mail, one that Secretary of State Jenna Griswold says Colorado handles better than other states. Colorado has the lowest signature rejection rate of any state that has vote-by-mail for all. And on average, 
signature issues is are actually going down in every comparable election. That's because with every election, voters add another signature to their file. So more signatures for machines and judges to match against. But young voters are still hit the hardest. Typically, young voters have fewer signatures on file, uh, and their signatures are still evolving. This is the Agilis ballot sorting machine. It can check the signature on 18,000 ballots in just an hour. But despite how accurate these machines and the human judges are, they still struggle with young voter signatures. Carly Coppice is the Weld County Clerk and Recorder. She says that's in part because the top signature for many younger voters in the file is from the digital pad at the DMV. I, I don't know about you, but uh, my signature on a pad is nowhere close to what my actual signature is. It's horrible. Part of the problem in Colorado's vote-by-mail system is the fast differences between counties. Step across the border from Weld into Adams County, and a voter has a three times higher likelihood of having a ballot rejected. Josh Ziegelbaum is the Adams County clerk and recorder. He says that's in part because he has a diverse county, which can add to signature issues. Especially for somebody who's immigrated here, some people come from countries where they don't use last names. Uh, and you know, they may not use signatures. It may not be a thing. But he says that's okay. That's why we have the curing process. Ziegelbaum says they have all kinds of ways for voters to cure or fix their signature, even on a phone. But most people don't fix their signature. One reason could be that Adams, like most other counties, only notifies voters that something's wrong in English. Ronaldo Hernandez, who voted in Arapahoe County, had a different problem. He cast his first vote in this year's June primary. And when I called him, he had no idea that it didn't count. If, if I never received this call, I would have never known. He remembers getting a cure letter from the Arapaho clerk. He logged into the mobile system, which showed him a picture of his signature, but he didn't complete the process to verify that it was his. If I see that that's my signature, why would I go out of my way just to, to re-sign the same signature, you know what I mean? That brings us back to Michael Yamada from the beginning of this story. He swore he completed the cure process, but I informed him that Denver records show he didn't, and he was shocked. Man, I gotta go to like a, I have to go vote in person now. Because he said, this election is too important. CPR investigative reporter Ben Marcus. Now there's another layer to the discussion. Colorado's Secretary of State Jenna Griswold has taken an aggressive stance toward President Donald Trump over mail-in balloting. That's concerning to local election officials in both parties because Griswold is the state's top election official and Trump is on the ballot this year. Let's get back to Ben's investigation. He found concerns about Griswold have dogged her since her tenure started. And a warning, the next part of this report includes explicit language. When President Trump started to attack mail-in ballots on Twitter, Griswold fought back. Colorado is an all-mail ballot state, and her pointed responses on Twitter led to numerous national news appearances. And I'm joined right now by the top elections official in the state, Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. Thank you so Colorado much. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. Uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us. By mail, the president does not want Americans to vote. She also frequently attacked the president's handling of coronavirus. In an interview, Griswold defended her messaging. Um, and I will always push back against what I see as undemocratic, uh, very troubling tactics. And, and that would be true whether it was a, a Democratic president or a Republican president. 
But even Democrats like Chafee County Clerk and Recorder Lori Mitchell say they think that the secretary's office is being politicized, not for the benefit of Colorado, but to further Griswold's career. And and that's disturbing because uh, we need her leadership now. Mitchell says when Griswold attacks the president, that makes her job harder, having to field phone calls from voters concerned if their votes will count. CPR News interviewed more than two dozen people and reviewed thousands of pages of emails, and we found that many clerks have been frustrated by the secretary since she took office. They lament the turnover of all her senior staff and being left out of policy discussions about election processes and COVID rules. Tiffany Parker is the unaffiliated La Plata County Clerk and Recorder. She says this election won't be affected by the tension, but the relationship between clerks and the secretary has deteriorated. And that's unfortunate because um, we are, again, the boots on the ground, the ones that are administering these elections. Things started out bad last year when Griswold championed a major expansion of voter service centers and drop boxes without consulting the clerks. The state bill was largely the brainchild of America Votes, a liberal group. Parker says the counties were unified against it. Um, the County Clerks Association operates in a very nonpartisan manner. We don't bring in partisan politics ever. Soon after that bill, just six months into her tenure as Secretary of State, Griswold flirted with a run for U.S. Senate. Over the next couple of months, two experienced senior staffers left the office, Ben Schler and Melissa Polk. They wouldn't comment. Carly Coppice misses them. She's the Republican Weld County clerk and recorder. I adored Ben and Melissa. I absolutely did. I worked with them a lot. Then this March, Jenny Flanagan, the deputy secretary of state, left. She signed a settlement agreement with Griswold that includes a non-disparagement clause. Griswold would only say that she's still friends with the former staff. Uh, And I'm proud of all of them, and they are continuing to do great work. But by the time COVID struck Colorado, some local elections officials had had it with the secretary and the turnover in her office. In April, the Broomfield clerk, Jennifer Robinson, got an email that Griswold was doing an event with a liberal voter group. Robinson sent the email to her election director, Todd Davidson. I forwarded that to Todd. You going to listen to this? He responded, of course, I'm f***ing myself with excitement to hear her bullshit. Us some more. This is Robinson reading one of the emails in a meeting with her boss. Tiffany Parker in La Plata County says clerks were under a lot of pressure and not getting much guidance around COVID-19. When they finally got rules, they were unworkable. The secretary had to go back three times to rewrite rules because they were deemed Ill- illegal. County clerks briefly considered suing the secretary. Griswold says she understands some of the frustrations, that they come with change. I'm the first Democrat elected in 60 years and just the 10th woman ever elected to current statewide office in Colorado's history. New leadership brings change, change that can be uncomfortable for some. She has some supporters. The Adams County clerk said he had no concerns with the office. For her part, Lori Mitchell, the Democratic Chafee County clerk, hopes to get past the animosity after the election. Just get through this election and try to regroup. Can everybody just put their head down, do the work, make this uh, a successful election for all the 64 counties? Mitchell says she just has to block out the noise from the president to the secretary of state. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Ben joins us now. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me again. You mentioned on Twitter that this was a weird story to report. Why? 
Uh, so at the start, the editors said, Ben, we want you to do something on elections. That was about the long and the short of the assignment. So the first thing I did is just call around to local clerks and recorders, elections experts. Uh, and they basically, there was a common theme. Something is up with the Secretary of State's office. Uh, so we started to dig into it. There's staff turnover at the senior levels. There was allegations of uh, poor budgeting, that she was politicizing the office. Uh, so we, what we do is we go for records. Um, and we ask the Secretary of State's office for a bunch of uh, public records. And she quoted us more than $5,000. Mm. So we negotiated that down to 1,200. We got about 400 pages. That makes it the most expensive per page records request I've ever uh, paid for as a journalist. So we knew at that point that something was up. And at some point you realized that someone was following your reporting, right? Yeah, oftentimes other reporters will follow your reporting. You'll get word that that, uh, that somebody's doing the same story you are. But this was weird because it was an attorney named Alex Gano. He appears to do some uh, volunteer work for Democrats. He had given to Jenna Griswold's campaign, uh, has been active in Democratic politics. He's a housing attorney. We got a call from a county and they said, look, this guy named Alex Gano is asking for all the records you asked for uh, in this story, specifically the ones you asked for. And he went to all these different counties and asked. And so so we asked Jenna, did she direct this guy, Jenna Griswold, uh, to go after those records? And she re- she said, uh, it's not unusual for records to be requested. So to your investigation about rejected ballots in Colorado, more than 100,000 across four elections, that's a lot of uncounted votes. And you got a lot of reaction for that. We did. We found that signature mismatch was the biggest problem, that the signature on your ballot envelope's not matching what's on file. It gets rejected. Um, You get a letter in the mail from the clerk, uh, and you're supposed to fix it, and a lot of people don't. Uh, It's only about 1% of ballots across all counties, but that's a lot of votes over time and could be the difference in close elections. So a lot of the the concern that we heard on Twitter was that people wanted to make sure that their ballot was counted. Uh, And basically what I can say is signatures still matter. Like, take it seriously. I would say that a number of voters that I contacted who had rejected ballots admitted that they were lazy when they signed their signature. Uh, For younger voters, where you register makes a difference at the DMV or if you sign a registration on the 16th Street Mall. Be very careful with your signature, even if it's on that digital pad at the DMV, because that's going to be used to match your signature. And in your story, you mentioned younger voters are hit the hardest by this signature issue. Yeah, this was surprising to me. More than 10 times older voters, the the rate at which their ballots are rejected, uh, really in that 18 to 25-year-old age group. And this is partly because their signatures are not static yet. They're kind of developing um, and they're not being taught cursive in school anymore. Some people told me. Uh, So the key is to if you get this letter in the mail that says it's to cure your ballot, take it seriously. Read it. If you get something from your county clerk, it's giving you a chance to fix it. Other states don't give you a chance to fix it. So take that time to do it. You have up until eight days after the election. You can do it on your phone uh, with text to cure. It's a pretty easy system. Uh, But, you know, vote by mail is a convenient system. It's an easy system for a lot of us to use. And the vast majority of people don't have a problem with it. But that convenience means that you need to take a little bit of diligence on your part to make sure that vote gets counted. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. CPR investigative reporter Ben Marcus, he's been looking into rejected ballots in Colorado. (laughs) 
Voters have 11 statewide ballot measures to consider this election, and voters in Denver have another 12. They include a sales tax to help people experiencing homelessness and another issue that has yet to be resolved, whether to allow pit bulls in the city. Let's get to the end of the measures facing voters in the state's largest city with Denverite editor Anna Campbell and reporter David Sachs. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Hi, Avery. Let's start with the question about homelessness. Denver is still trying to figure out a place to create a city-sanctioned temporary camp for people experiencing homelessness. This summer, there have been rows of tents across the city in county buildings and along streets. Tensions have peaked when crews have been called in to clean out the tents. Where does ballot measure 2B come into the discussion, Anna? Sure. So this measure would increase sales taxes by 0.25%. Uh, that's basically a two and a half cents on a $10 purchase. So the idea is to raise about $40 million each year, although that figure was made before the pandemic basically shut down the economy. Uh, the money would pay for services for people experiencing homelessness, uh, things like building housing and uh, expanding shelter hours. Also, ensuring that more substance abuse counseling and other support is available. Um, we should note that the tax would not be collected on food used at home, water, fuel, medical supplies, or feminine hygiene products. Who supports ballot measure 2B? Sure. So uh, City Councilwoman at large, Robin Kniech, sponsored the City Council initiative that put uh, ballot measure 2B before voters. Um, she hopes it will create about 1,800 homes over 10 years. Uh, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock supports it, uh, as do service providers like the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and the Dolores Project uh, and the Downtown Denver Partnership. What about opposition? Yeah, so there's no group that formally opposes the initiative, uh, but questions have been raised about the impact on low-income Denverites of, of raising the sales tax and about whether the extra money will be used prudently and effectively. At a time when election integrity is under intense scrutiny, Denver voters are deciding the future of the city's director of elections. David, you've been looking into this one. It's Initiative 2I. Yes, it has to do with the Denver's Office of the Clerk and Recorder. So that's an elected position that oversees things like city elections and public records. The, clerk, the current clerk and recorder, Paul Lopez, he wants to restructure his office. So he wants to make all top-level positions appointed. Right now, the city charter only allows him three total appointments. Uh, Initiative 2I would change that to five, similar to what the city auditor's office has. Um, but it would also remove the director of elections from the charter. And that's interesting timing because when the position was added to the city's constitution in 2007, it helped make Denver a leader in mail-in voting. But to be clear, Initiative 2I doesn't specifically ask about removing the director of elections positions from the city charter, right? Right. So the devil's in the details. Uh, a yes vote means you support the clerk and recorder getting five political appointments instead of three. But it also means you support removing the director of elections position from the city charter, which right now actually guarantees the existence of the position after Lopez is gone. Paul Lopez believes the change will improve his office's workflow and effectiveness, but he also says he plans to keep the director of elections position intact. Um, it, it would just be no longer required by city charter. So Denver's former director of elections, Amber, that's Amber McReynolds, you might remember her name, she opposes the ballot measure. Um, she thinks it downgrades the importance of the position, and uh, Mayor Hancock is neutral. And on the subject of how the city is run, let's talk about ballot measure 2E. This would require the city council to approve certain mayoral appointments. 
right, the mayor would put forward candidates for 14 key positions, um, which he already does. But the charter change would let council members approve or block those appointments with the majority vote. So we're talking about positions like the police chief, sheriff, the director of safety, also the directors of the Department of Transportation, Aviation, Planning and Development, Human Services, and the city attorney, among others. And this goes against a long-standing structure in Denver city government. Yeah, Denver's had a strong mayor system for a long time, and it's a common setup throughout American cities. But some members of city council are getting tired of how much power the mayor's office actually has. They want to decentralize the mayor's power. Supporters believe the change is rooted in good governance. Um, They think it will build consensus around public safety positions, and they also think it will prevent nepotism and appointees who are not qualified. What about opposition to this? I imagine the mayor doesn't like it. (laughs) Yeah, Mayor Michael Hancock opposes this change. Um, He thinks it could make finding and confirming qualified candidates harder. Um, There's also concern it could delay the appointments of important leaders. Um, But I should note there's no organized opposition to this ballot measure. Anna, let's talk about pit bulls. There's been back and forth on these dogs for decades in Denver. They've actually been illegal in the city since 1989. What does ballot measure 2J do? So 2J creates a path for these dogs to be legal in the city, uh, specifically the American Pitbull Terrier, the American Staffordshire Terrier, and the Staffordshire Bull Terrier breeds. Um, It does not overturn the city's Pitbull ban. Instead, it creates kind of a workaround. What's the workaround? So voters are being asked if they support creating a permit system for Pitbull breeds that lets owners register their dogs in Denver. Um, Owners would also have to pay a fee, uh, provide an emergency contact, and prove the dogs are vaccinated. Dogs would be limited to two per household. And after three years, if there are no violations, a pit bull could be registered in the city like any other dog. What do supporters say about it? So an organization called Replace Denver BSL, that stands for breed-specific legislation, says the city's pit bull ban is not effective. Uh, They want to replace the ban altogether. And is there organized opposition to the pit bull ballot measure? There is none organized, none registered with the city, but Mayor Hancock uh, vetoed a similar bill passed by city council in February. There are also ballot measures like 4A that would increase property taxes to give teachers raises and 4B, which would borrow money for maintenance within Denver public schools. David, is there a common theme with what voters are being asked this election? And is there a concern that 12 local ballot measures is going to overwhelm voters? I'm seeing two themes. Uh, One theme I'm seeing is a change to how the sausage gets made. Lots of little changes to how government works often in order to give the city's legislative branch just a little more power. Um, And we're also seeing an attempt to tax people more, to put a dent in huge issues like climate change, which is a tax we didn't talk about but is on the ballot, and homelessness. So very visible solutions being pitched to uh, solve very visible and existential problems. And we've got about a minute left. So before we go, uh, tell us briefly about that climate change tax. So it's it's identical to 2B in that it's a 0.25% sales tax. So again, two and a half cents on a $10 purchase. Um, the idea is to raise about $40 million each year. The sales tax would go, uh, I'm sorry, it would pay for programs to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution and basically help Denver adapt to climate change. So that's another issue before voters. Well, Anna and David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Avery. 
Anna Campbell is the editor of Denverite and David Sachs is a city reporter. The Denverite team has put together a voter guide for all of the issues voters will be deciding. It's at denverite.com and we'll also link it to it today in Colorado Matters podcast. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This year's elections could be the most important of our lifetimes. As you get ready to vote, look to CPR News for context and clarity in our daily reporting. And visit CPR.org for a free voter's guide, a comprehensive resource to help as you consider everything on the ballot. Get to know the issues and candidates you're unfamiliar with, including third parties. Find the CPR News 2020 Voter's Guide at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lowe. If you haven't received your ballot for the November election yet, it should arrive in the mail any day. And it is a long one. The Purplish team is breaking down the statewide measures. Let's join CPR Public Affairs editor Megan Verlee and reporters Andrew Kinney and Benta Berkland. We're hearing a lot nationally and in Colorado about the presidential race, obviously. And then there's a U.S. Senate race here. But we have a wide slate of other issues people will be deciding this year. These are statewide ballot initiatives. So this is one reason I'm really glad I'm hosting this week. I'm going to give you two a a very quick little pop quiz and extremely quick. I'm going to throw out a name and you tell me which ballot initiative this is. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Andy, Proposition 115. Is that old? I I know this one. That one's the 22-week abortion ban. Yes. Ha! Um... Megan, Proposition 116. I have no idea. Income tax cut. Yes. Wow. Great, we know each other. You guys are a good little team. Okay, final one, Proposition EE. Oh, that's the tobacco and vaping products tax. Yes. See? You guys knocked it out of the park, right? So (laughs) One for three ain't bad. Before we dive into all those details, we're going to look at kind of what is a ballot measure, because ballot initiatives were actually the topic of the very first episode of Purplish. Um, oh, my God, that was a long time ago. <laughs> I know. And there's something that's they've really shaped the laws and the government in our state. Um, and they've been around for 110 years. This was part of the progressive movement. There was a whole slate of state lawmakers who ran on increasing direct democracy in the state. Because you think about how do you get the the initiative power? It it takes power away from lawmakers, gives it to the citizens. Normally, lawmakers don't like to do that. Right. But it was an actual movement. So in 1910, uh, a whole bunch of these guys got elected. They called a special session and put a, a measure out to the public that not only created initiatives, but it also gave people the power to try to recall a bill through the ballot, Mm. which we're seeing used this year. It's a very rare power um, and created the recall power for public officials. So so people voted to give themselves the power to vote on more stuff. Exactly. And it's been used a lot since then. I mean, it's happened. It happens throughout the country, but more Western states have statewide ballot initiatives. And it's been interesting to see some things become law that Colorado was on the forefront of. And I wonder would that have happened if it had to go through the legislature? Yeah, that 
geographic pattern you mentioned is really dramatic. It's so much more common in the West. And you have, you have to think it has to do with the fact that the governments here are younger, maybe, and were able to be reshaped a little bit. I think so. And it's expensive to put something on the ballot. So you go to the ballot when you're not getting it from the legislature. I think we all know that the Colorado legislature was not going to legalize recreational marijuana <laughs> no. on its own. Yeah. But the voters did. Well, and- even the proposal that would let someone who has a terminal illness take medication to end their life. That's something that didn't get through the legislature, and then it passed as a statewide ballot initiative. Exactly. It's an interesting um, balance how you get these sort of forefront policies. Uh, It's interesting that you mentioned um, the uh, medical aid and dying uh, law that Colorado Mm -hmm. voters approved. Because, yeah, we've sat through really emotional hearings at the Capitol with bills that didn't go anywhere. And interestingly, this year, you've got kind of a parallel situation where state lawmakers have been, Democratic state lawmakers have been working for a long time on paid family leave, not getting it, not getting it, not getting it. This year, it's on the ballot. And that that's the initiative that would give people paid time off guaranteed pretty much from their jobs. Really, like, quite a progressive social change. And, you know, it makes me think that Colorado... In the past, our voters have given us kind of a progressive or a liberal image by passing things, like you said, legal cannabis. But it's a little more complicated than that. Well, think about Tabor. That's certainly not liberal, and that was passed by voters, and that's still shaping the the state enormously, which brings me to uh, a segue, which is, you know, we have this wide-ranging, diverse set of topics, but... So it's kind of hard to come up with overarching themes, but I think we can start with taxes and fiscal issues because several measures do tie into that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I called up Mandy Zock at the National Conference of State Legislatures, and she's kind of a specialist in these ballot initiatives. I had her look over Colorado's list of 11 measures, and I said, Mandy, what are some themes that you said that you see stand out? And here's what she told me. Oh, there are so many different big ideas. I would say tax and revenue is the biggest theme um, that's always on the ballot, not just in Colorado, but across the country. Um, The other big themes in Colorado where we're seeing multiple measures on the same topic are gambling and lotteries and elections. But we also will see abortion. um, We'll see the Gray Wolves measure. That's kind of an interesting outlier. Um, So it's a real smattering of topics for voters to get informed on this November. So like she said, a real smattering. But yeah, let's start with those taxes and financial measures. So let's run through them. We've got something that takes the uh, income tax level down for everybody, right? Yes, that's right. It's a slight income tax reduction. What's interesting about this is this proposal came about in response to an idea from the left to increase taxes. Which is Um, not on the ballot. Right. They didn't end up getting enough signatures um, during the pandemic. Yeah, originally it was going to be forcing voters to choose. Do you want an income tax reduction or do you want an income tax hike? Uh, But (laughs) no, now we're going to see our voters going to be kind of tempted into this? Are they going to go for this thing that could deliver them a a slight savings? Or will they heed messages that the state can't afford to lose that revenue right now? We should say that that what uh, the progressive groups were trying to get on was a graduated income tax. Colorado currently has a flat income tax. The measure that did make it to the ballot lowers that by a, a fraction of a percent. Uh, the, the progressive groups wanted to create a graduated one, tax higher income earners more. I think what is interesting is that generally voters don't like taxes. I think mm-hmm. lowering everybody's taxes is usually probably a slam dunk. But we are in the midst of this terrible recession. We, You guys wrote a lot of stories this spring about how hard hit government services are. Yep. And I do wonder if more than usual that the 
pro-government funding side will be able to make the argument, like, please don't take away another $100 million when your schools are are suffering and the roads are suffering. And I wonder if the lack of a federal COVID relief package will play into that. Um, It it brings me to another tax-related issue that you two have covered and know a lot about, the Gallagher repeal. And try to boil that down. And then it seems like there's disagreement about whether this is actually a tax increase or not. Fundamental question for Gallagher repeal, ignoring all the complicated mechanics, is should the state give all homeowners and residential property owners an automatic property tax cut in 2021 that could really deny $700 million of funding to schools and county governments? Or should it repeal this big part of the Constitution and basically stabilize property tax rates? So it's not a tax increase per se from where we're at now, but it is saying we're going to we're going to forego property tax decreases that we would have gotten otherwise in the future. And that's confusing, I think, because people... What's confusing about that? (laughs) I mean, Gallagher is like higher math because it's all about what percentage of the statewide tax base is uh, comes from private residences versus uh, businesses and industry. It is it it gets tied up in Tabor. It's super confusing. But yeah, Andy, I think you boiled it down to what actually will affect people is will you see your residential property tax rate go down or will it stay the same going into the future? I think one thing that's really interesting about Gallagher is normally when we're talking about statewide measures and taxes, there's statewide taxes that fund statewide services. But Gallagher affects local money. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a really unbalanced effect. And this is the reason that there's bipartisan support to repeal a major tax protection in Colorado is that Gallagher really hurts the rural areas where their economies, their property values aren't doing so hot a lot more than it hurts your Denver's. And that's why this was referred to the ballot by the legislature. Bipartisan. And then we've got some things that aren't quite taxes. Uh, <laughs> voting on fees. Uh, it would require voter approval for fees above a certain dollar amount. And then the, the paid family leave measure, which would be a fee, but some people say it, they well, define that as a tax. I'll so. take on the obscure and hard to figure out how it affects your actual life <laughs> one, which is the voting on on fees and enterprises. This, like Gallagher, is one that is going to ask the voters to understand a lot more about how their state government works than I think an average person dealing with their their life uh, ever usually needs to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights says Coloradans have to vote on tax increases, yep. but it doesn't mention fees. And so the state legislature has found a, an end run where they create these enterprises. They're like a state-owned business, and they charge a fee. It's still money that you pay to the government, and in a lot of situations, you don't necessarily have a choice. But yeah, it's specialized. It's more it, narrowly focused. Yeah. And so what this taxes versus fees debate boils down to is actually people on both sides agree that the fees have gotten, you know, kind of twisted and and, uh, kind of almost really beyond what people anticipated them originally being used for. I feel obliged to say that the state Supreme Court has protected using fees this way and does say that they are exempt from Tabor. But yes, a lot of people would say that it violates the spirit of Tabor. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and even if it doesn't violate it, it's it's made state finances a lot more complicated as lawmakers try to find a way around the restrictions of Tabor. To progressives and liberals, that's a sign that we need to get rid of Tabor and make it easier to just fund things in a straightforward fashion through taxes the usual way. To conservatives, it means, well, you're disobeying what voters said with Tabor, so let's shut off that option as well. And in fact, what's kind of interesting is so you've got this measure that is urging the public to have more say over this form of financing in the state government. At the same time, that right near it on the ballot, 
you have paid family leave, which is set up in this exact way. Yeah, paid family leave, which we mentioned earlier, uh, is going to be funded, if it's approved, by a fee on your income, which basically the government will be collecting. From every worker in the state. Unless they're exempted for various reasons, we'll be collecting 0.9% of your income, which I think a lot of people will think sounds just like a tax. Yeah. The only real difference is that it's dedicated for a single purpose of providing paid leave. You know, paid family leave is something Democrats have tried to pass for years. And, you know, it's one of those issues where Democrats say it's more important than ever right now in a pandemic, how, how critical it is to have this. And then you have conservatives saying it's more important than ever right now to not put more burdens on business. So, Megan, I know you've covered paid family leave. If this ballot initiative fails, what happens next? You know, Andy's reported on this, and it's the thing I keep hammering on in our conversations, is I don't think it goes anywhere. I mean, I think it's really hard to go back to the legislature and say Colorado voters wouldn't do it, but we should. Uh, You know, that said, I think you might see a different version. The governor uh, is behind the idea of just telling companies they have to offer this and then trying to create sort of an insurance marketplace for paid family leave. But the program that's been pushed by at the legislature to have a state-run kind of uh, California and I think six, seven other states have this model like that. And D.C. Yeah, and D.C. I think that model, if voters reject it, is, is dead in the water for a good long time. And that kind of speaks to the way that ballot initiatives really shake up politics. It's a gamble because, yeah, voters might say, that sounds great. I want my my friends and relatives to have that. Let's do it. And boom, you have a new big government program that you couldn't get for years otherwise. But if they don't. Similarly, I don't think you're going to hear a lot of conversation about single payer health care in Colorado after 80 percent of Coloradans rejected Colorado care a couple of years ago. You know, when you put an idea like this on the ballot, you are giving lawmakers a very clear message one way or the other how the public feels about it. And I do think that does change the debate from that point. So um, hate to leave money behind, but there's a few more issues I want to touch on on the, the social side, like the effort to ban abortions after 22 weeks. You know, Benta, it's interesting. I know you and I have both covered past efforts uh, around uh, limiting abortion in Colorado, but they've been very different from this initiative. Right. I mean, it first happened back in 2008, and it was the personhood amendment. Colorado was the first state in the country to put that on the ballot. It defined personhood as beginning at the moment of conception. And so it gave fertilized human eggs the same constitutional rights as people. And so that would have had a lot of implications for things like congressional redistricting, HOV lanes. You know, there's a lot of legal Gosh, I things. didn't even think about those. I just remember like I, uh, in vitro fertilization and certain yes. forms of contraception were also implicated. Yes. So, I mean, that's been defeated uh, several times in Colorado, but this is, this is much different. Yeah. So... Colorado is one of very few states that doesn't set a gestational limit on abortion. Um, it means that we have, a, I think, at least one provider here who does uh, abortions quite late into pregnancy. Those are very, very expensive. They're very rare. But on the other side, uh, people who are, are advocating for this say, look, theoretically, uh, as it stands in Colorado, a woman with a healthy pregnancy can go to a doctor uh, before the, the child is born and, and end it. Um, And so they want to see a a limit on that 22 weeks is a point where you can start arguing about viability outside of the Mm -hmm. woman's body. Uh, Those very, very, very premature babies do have a chance of surviving. 
Um, so this, I think, for voters becomes a test of whether Colorado voters will accept any limits on abortion or uh, if this is a strongly enough uh, pro-abortion rights state that even sort of a, a mid-pregnancy ban uh, wouldn't be accepted. Well, and this is also a test of the new evolution of this anti-abortion movement where it, in a lot of places, Roe versus Wade is accepted. It's not going to change. But you still see this whittling away through restrictions on where doctors can practice or uh, proposing something that is supposed to be more middle of the road. But I'll point out that you know opponents of this abortion measure also argue that it's it's not as moderate as it seems to them because they say, as correctly, there's no exception for rape. There's no exception for incest or a fetal or abnormality. And, you know, the people who are uh, opposed to the measure also argue that um, sometimes women don't know until fairly late in pregnancy if they weren't trying to get pregnant that they are. Um, and and that access being more limited, it may take longer to, to get in for an abortion. But uh, like you guys said, a lot of other states do have these restrictions already. So we yeah. would be not out front on this issue at all if it passes. You know, pregnancy is a very personal issue. And the, the polls show that a lot of people who are comfortable with allowing abortions early in her pregnancy, get less and less comfortable with it as that pregnancy progresses. I, I do wonder if the politics around this have changed uh, with the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and with mm. Roe v. Wade coming sort of back into the national conversation. I'm going to be really interested to see how the votes fall on this yeah, that's on election day. A, that's exactly what I was thinking with the Supreme Court, and especially if we have Amy Coney Barrett uh, have that vote before the election. How does that impact this initiative? So Great question. Uh, another um, different issue that some people are passionate about that would require the state to reintroduce gray wolves on the western slope. How much do you think people are paying attention to this in the rural areas and that versus the urban corridor? I think the phrase some people are passionate about really sums it up. Either you care a lot or you are not even aware of it. I have to say that the thing that is burnt into my mind with this is much earlier this year, back when people actually gathered in small spaces together, I went to a <laughs> taping of the, the NPR Politics podcast up in Boulder. And at the time, uh, backers of the Gray Wolf Reintroduction Initiative were gathering signatures, and there were a couple of them outside the theater, and, and they were coming up to people and saying, do you support reintroducing gray wolves on the western slope? Mm. And I thought, my gosh, people in Boulder signing a petition to reintroduce wolves on the western slope, like crystallizes one of the big divisions in our state, which is between the urban areas and the rural areas. Uh, I suspect this is a measure that will do really, really well on the urban core of the, the front range where people see the, the rural parts of Colorado as a place to recreate an open space, a wild space. And I know there's polling that says it's popular on the Western Slope, but mm -hmm. I, I do not. I suspect that everywhere outside of the very urban areas, this will be voted against so heavily because people are much more tied into the agricultural economy and and have much more concern about wolves having an impact on on our very large livestock industry. Yep, they're majestic predators and the question is yeah, do you want to Do you focus on majestic or do you focus on predator? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly, I want to touch on the National Popular Vote Compact, and that was something Democratic state lawmakers voted to join in 2019. So it basically would cancel out the Electoral College if enough states sign on. So the state's electors would then go to the winner of the National Popular Vote. That proposal is being challenged at the ballot, so voters could actually undo that law. I am such a nerd for this. Like, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, so this is actually... Uh, 
the public using the referendum process where uh, a lot of laws in Colorado, unless the legislature specifically says we need this for the health, safety and well-being of the public, the public has the right to try and get that law recalled. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened after Democrats uh, voted to join the National Popular Vote Compact. A couple of local politicians, uh, Rose Puglisi, she's a county commissioner in Mesa County and the mayor of Monument, Colorado, they started this effort to get signatures to put it on the ballot. I think this one's just going to be a partisan dogfight. Like the last two presidents to win the Electoral College and not the popular vote were Republicans, George W. Bush and, and Donald Trump. Democrats know that the Electoral College increasingly stands in their way of, of getting a president. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, we still call our show purplish. Um, I think how that vote comes down might have an impact on the title of our show because it will really separate party affiliations. And, and to be clear, this measure, you know, the National Popular Vote Compact is is kind of a hypothetical thing until enough states sign on. Like Colorado's votes are going to continue to go toward whoever wins Colorado. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Until and unless a bunch of other states join on. But yeah, it's going to be, it's a real divisive issue that gets into this core question of um, just how much we want to stick with the Republic versus the democracy. And it also ties back into the wolf question that I think there's a real urban-rural divide on the Electoral College issue. Yeah, because the um, Electoral College gives its power to rural areas. So I, I just want to throw in one thing that I read that I thought was really interesting was a, a political science number cruncher looked at it. And his argument, the standard argument on the, the Electoral College is that it disenfranchises larger states versus smaller ones. So Wyoming, Alaska, Hawaii have outsized influence. The argument that he said has been overlooked is it also disenfranchises high turnout states. Like if you think about it in Colorado, we have a really high turnout, but that doesn't give us any more mm. impact. We don't get more than our nine electors. Yes. <laughs> and so your individual vote in Colorado actually um, counts slightly less than a vote in a low turnout state because mm. more people voting doesn't give you more say in the, the election. <laughs> I just thought that was an interesting one. Mm, and another point. way in which Colorado's vote is discounted on the national stage. Mm, interesting. We've talked a lot about so many of these individual measures. Any final thoughts on the overall ballot as it ties into politics or turnout or just even the overwhelming nature of so many initiatives on top of congressional races, Senate race, presidential race? I have a couple uh, you're shocked to hear. Um, <laughs> one is that I expect most of these to fail. I, I haven't I, I should go and run the numbers, but my sense is in that Coloradans have oh, fatigue with creating policy at the ballot. Mm -hmm. um, and and so in recent years, you've seen things that that we thought would pass fairly easily not pass. I mean, there was a tobacco tax just a couple of years ago that did not pass. Um, and so and that's usually something you can kind of count on more than other taxes in other states. Colorado has been uh, less willing on it, which is interesting. Um, but, yeah, I think. You know, it, there's been a lot of public discussion about how Tabor has made things difficult in the state and Amendment 23 and Gallagher um, that I do wonder if the public, unless it is a very clear policy, and that's why I think something like an income tax reduction, a 22-week abortion ban, like they're very clear and easy to mm -hmm. grasp. I tend to think that the more complicated an initiative and the more initiatives on the ballot, the less you're going to see something go through. That's an interesting point. And we'll have to see. I feel like they're I don't know. Anytime we do these ballot initiatives, a bunch of them, it's kind of like you're playing, what's the game, Plinko, where just the ball is bouncing <laughs> random <laughs> directions. <laughs> I feel like we could easily see a situation where voters simultaneously decide to 
cut the income tax while raising the tobacco tax. That's one we didn't discuss, Proposition mm-hmm. EE. Um, I, I just feel like it could end up going in some really random directions where things don't necessarily align cleanly. But voter fatigue, yeah, could be a real a real issue. Where uh, where do you see people landing on that, Benta? I've I've definitely heard before, and I've seen this where when things are complicated, people are more likely to vote no because they just they don't want to make a change that's going to make things worse. So it's like, hmm. okay, let's just keep things the way they are because I'm not sure about this. So mm-hmm. I mean, we do have an engaged electorate, and I've I've talked to plenty of voters who said they were going to go through the blue book, but also I think the presidential race and the the pandemic and that takes the oxygen out of the room and people have a lot going on. So I'll be really curious what does happen. You know, Do most of these fail or do we see some odd pairings of things that pass? I will tell you, though, at least some people care. We always get a billion hits to the voter guide whenever we put it on our website. And one more thing I'll be looking out for, I have a theory that part of the reason that tax increases never pass in Colorado is because Tabor mandates that they're written in all caps and they lead with a really big number. And... With this paid leave initiative, it's not written like that because it's a fee. It's not all caps. It says a bunch of nice things about the initiative before it gets to the cost. Will that prove that voters are willing to approve these new costs if it's not written quite so harshly? Oh, I think there's so many interesting questions and whether or not the paid leave one in particular passes. Uh, One thing that I haven't seen them emphasize but I think is is – a selling point for it is that it doesn't go into the state constitution. So if you look at Colorado Care, which is the last time we had an initiative that tried to set up a really big, yeah. expensive, but also applies to everybody in the state measure, it mm. went down hugely. But it went, it was was going to go into the state constitution, which is very, very hard to change. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a little surprised that I'm not hearing more from the paid leave folks. Look, this is a law change. If there are unintended consequences, the legislature has the power to go in and fix them. So that is a difference. But I don't know. If if that difference will resonate with voters. I think it's probably more in the weeds to resonate with a lot of people. In the weeds will be on my tombstone. (laughs) (laughs) An excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News with public affairs reporters Binta Berkland and Andrew Kenny and public affairs editor Megan Verlee. You can hear the entire episode at Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out our voter guide at CPR.org. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.